Good morning, International Church of Prague. We have some great news for you. Starting May 23rd, we will return to live worship together. There will be joy in the house of the Lord as we are able to connect in person. We'll still need to maintain distancing between households, wear masks, and of course, wash our hands. But the restriction against singing has been lifted by the courts and we can gather again. We'll also be celebrating baptism and communion on May 30th, along with church membership. So if you're interested in membership or if you have questions about baptism, please email us or send us a message via Facebook or YouTube. We can't wait to be together again as the church family. Well, today we are continuing our Pathways to Knowing God and Making Him Known series. Last week, we looked at the path of truth and we discovered that truth is a person. What is true will, will conform not to our thoughts or our view of the world. Truth conforms to the author of truth, Jesus Christ, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. To live truth, we are to follow the character, teaching, and example of Jesus. Here's maybe a way to look at it. We need to understand that truth is a narrow path. Much like this narrow doorway we have here on this chapel, truth is narrow. It's not broad. But the way to discern truth, the way to test whether something is true, is whether or not it reflects the character, the teaching, and the example of Jesus Christ. Everything that is true will be in alignment with his word and in alignment with his character, his example, and his teaching. To live truth, we must learn to think about truth. And one of the things that I love about this, this doorway in this chapel is we have this narrow door here, but right above it, right above it is an image that's meant to reflect Jesus. It's a reminder that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the foundation upon which all truth must be built on. And so if we're to live truth, if we're to align ourselves to him, we need to think the way he thinks. We need to examine what the scripture has so that it can guide our thoughts as well as our actions and our attitudes. Everything about us needs to be in alignment with him. Here's our call as followers of Jesus who trust in him and treasure him above everything else. These are the values that we embrace here at the International Church of Prague. First of all, we are to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and our strength. Then we are to live truth by aligning our lives to his word and to the character and commands of Jesus, the truth. Then from that, we are to love others by giving grace to them as God has given grace to us. And that's how we learn to love them as Jesus loves us. So we're to love God, we're to live truth, and we're to give grace so that we can walk together in the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? How do we learn to live truth? If truth is a narrow path, how are we able to assess whether or not the things that we believe, the things that we're basing our relationship with the Lord on, or basing our obedience on, how do we know that it conforms to truth? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that every deed you commit results from a decision that we make. Every word that we speak is the product of the thoughts that we think. 
What happens in our minds determines what we do and what we say. If we want to experience victory in our life and the joy that Jesus Christ offers, then learning to train our minds to think God's thoughts is absolutely critical. The problem is that many of us, in truth, suffer from self-saturated thinking. Our thoughts are directed not by God's Spirit, not by His Word, not by the character, example, and teaching of Jesus, but by our own passions, by the influences of the media and society, and the people around us. But God wants us to control our thoughts. In fact, He tells us in 2 Corinthians, the main passage we're going to look at here today, that we are to take our thoughts captive. That means that we're to grab a hold of them, but not just grab a hold of them, we are to take them captive and make them obedient to Christ Jesus. The truth is, most of us are controlled by our thoughts rather than taking them captive and submitting them to Jesus. So let's explore a bit about what the Bible has to say about our thought life, because it is so important. Turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Romans chapter 8. This incredible passage tells us a lot about how we are to think and how we're to assess our thought processes. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now I want you to notice that there's two different things working there. There's the law of a flesh and there's the law of the Spirit. Our nature, our selfishness, our self-centeredness is in conflict with the Spirit of God. But look down at verse 5 to, to see how this freedom that we're offered in Christ is manifest in our lives. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're self-focused. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, did you notice that there's a choice involved? You and I choose day by day and often moment by moment where to set our minds. We can set our minds on self-saturated thoughts where life is about me, about what I do, or we can set our minds on the Spirit of God, on His Word, on His truth. In that moment, when we do that, we're acknowledging that life is not about us. It is all about Him. Freedom comes from setting our minds on God, on His purpose, on His viewpoint, and then living truth by aligning our lives to Jesus and to the Word of God. So our pathway today is learning to set our minds on God and learning to test whether or not something is true to allow His thoughts and His will to direct our thoughts so that we can live by the Spirit and we can live out the freedom that He offers us. Now, here's a truth to, to begin with. Loving God and living truth go together. Our mind is the gateway to and from the heart. It's a doorway that allows our, the things into our heart and out of our heart. So where is your mindset? Who controls your thinking? I want you to, to really be critical right now with your own thought processes. How much of what you think is driven by Jesus Christ, by His Word, by His commands, by His example, and how much of it is driven 
by your own thoughts, by the world around you, the circumstances that you're in, by the influence that you have through media or through society, who's in control of your minds? Verse 6 of Romans 8, For to set the mind on the flesh, self-thoughts, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Scripture here tells us that there are two minds, two worldviews, two thought patterns, and we must choose between them each and every day as followers of Jesus. That first path, the flesh, is a self-focused mind. The focus is always on me, or it comes back to me. And that's the part you need to, to zoom in on. You see, oftentimes when we see this, when we see the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, we think about people that don't know God. We think of, about immorality. That's not necessarily what it's saying. That's certainly an example of the flesh. But really, the focus of the flesh is on me, where life is about me, where I'm in control, where things are driven by my will. In contrast, to set our minds on the Spirit is living the truth of Christ, and the focus is on Jesus Christ and His will, what He desires for us, whatever it may be. If you're seeking peace and the real life that God offers, we must think God's thoughts and not self-thoughts. It's not about us. Understand the way that works out in the life of a believer is to, to first remember faith is not about us. It's not an energy or a force that we build up within us. Faith focuses in on Jesus Christ. It is all about Him. It is setting our hearts and our minds on Him. Our faith grows as our vision of God grows. The more accurately we see Him, the stronger our faith. In contrast, let me, let me share with you what I believe the scripture teaches about doubt. Oftentimes, we think of doubt in terms of questions, but questions are not necessarily doubt. Doubt is taking our eyes off of Jesus and placing them on ourselves and on our circumstances. The great example where we see this is where Jesus and Peter are out on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is walking on the water. And Peter, Peter sees what Jesus is doing. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, command me and I'll come out to you. And of course, if you remember the story, we know that Peter takes some steps and he's walking towards Jesus on the water, doing something absolutely miraculous. And then he begins to sink. And Jesus tells Peter, when he begins to sink, after walking on the water, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I want you to, to grab a hold of that. He acknowledges that Peter has some faith, but he's pointing, he's reminding Peter of what his doubts are. What was his doubt? He took his eyes off of Jesus. Doubt is not the questions that we have. Doubt is looking in the wrong place. Let's look at it in the scripture. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I love the boldness of Peter's prayer. He wants to experience more and more of God. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now I want you to notice the end result of this encounter. What God wants to do in your life and through your life is to have your faith draw you to a greater understanding of who he is. It's all about him. Peter began to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. But there's great news in the story. Did you see it? The great news is that Jesus reached out to Peter. He lifted him up. And in the process, Peter and the other disciples came to see Jesus for who he truly is. The answer to our doubts is, is not that we don't have any questions. We don't wrestle with things that, we, that are too big for us to understand. The answer to our doubts is to fix our focus more and more on Jesus Christ, on his will, on his timing, and not on ourselves or on our circumstances. Let's go back to Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It means it's in conflict with God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The word submit here in this passage is absolutely critical. Spiritual victory comes through surrender. It doesn't come through some secret source. It comes through surrender. A surrender of our will to God's will. When we submit our hearts to the Lord and our minds to the Lord, our bodies to the Lord to be used for His purposes and not for our own comfort or our own wants, then His life takes root in us and we experience His peace and joy. Verse 8 goes on to say this, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. That brings us to that narrow path, that really important question. The first question we need to ask, the critical question that God is telling us to do is to examine whether or not our faith is real. Is our faith based upon who Christ is and what he has done? Or is it based upon our good works, our um, set of ideas, our going to church, our trying to do good deeds. He's asking us to examine whether or not our faith is real. Does the evidence of our lives, which means the fruit of our lives, demonstrate that we belong to God? Or does it show that our self-focus still is the one that's in control, that it's really the Lord of our life? So today we're examining these two types of thinking, and we'll do more so next week. Is your thinking, though, driven by self-thoughts or by living truth in alignment with Jesus Christ? Let me invite you to, to look at another passage. We're going to spend the rest of our time here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. Paul, as he is writing, uses military terminology to get our attention, to put us on alert that this is a battle that every believer will engage in. Living the truth of Jesus has divine power and it defeats strongholds. Um, And we'll look more at those strongholds specifically next week and how God's word can give us victory over patterns in our thought life. But living the truth of Jesus breaks through the confusion and the lofty opinions that sound like they might be true, but are actually, according to the scripture, against the knowledge and revelation of God. And the picture behind this idea of lofty opinions is that of a siege tower. Again, it's, it's military terminology. It's a siege tower that's being brought into place to battle the mind. Maybe the greatest example of what this is like, the imagery behind it, is like the famous Trojan horse that the Greeks used to enter into the city of Troy, where they built this giant wooden horse and they rolled it up to the gates and they left it there. And eventually the citizens of Troy brought the horse in, not knowing that inside of it were Greek warriors. They were so enamored with the wonder of this giant wooden horse that they couldn't see the danger. Same thing can happen to you and I spiritually. People uh, can come into our life with impressive opinions, impressive teachings that sound like they should be true, but they cover over a force that can destroy us if we allow them into our heart and if we do not place them up against the examination of truth, examining to see whether or not they align with the person, with the character, the teaching and example of Jesus Christ. Remember, truth is a narrow way and it is built upon the foundation of Jesus himself. The enemy seeks to destroy and he uses deception against us. Here's an important thing to remember. The most powerful lies have the most truth in them. I want you to think about that for a moment. The most powerful lies have the most truth in them. In other words, a 75% truth is more deceptive than a half-truth. And that is the very tactic that the enemy uses to bring false teaching into the church and to try to shipwreck your faith and my faith. And understand that often a 80% truth may sound right. Scriptures will be quoted to support it. But the 20% of lie can cause incredible destruction and damage because it goes against the knowledge of God against who he truly is. And just because someone quotes scriptures does not mean that what is being said is true because scripture can be taken out of context or it can be used in an incomplete manner, leaving out critical elements and is more deceptive in many ways than an outright lie. That's the tactic that Satan used even with Jesus in the temptation of Jesus. Satan quoted scripture but he did so partially and he did so out of context with the rest of God's word. Let's look at it because we need to understand that this can happen to us. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There is one Lord, there's only one person who can be on the throne of our heart, and that is God himself. But the strategy of Satan was to push Jesus to attempt to make God conform to his human will, to his human wants, rather than to submit to the plan, purposes, and timing of God. Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. He even quoted a passage that actually talks about Jesus but he twisted it in its use and he took it out of context, out of the way that it was intended to be used and, and the, and the um, connection that it would have with other scriptures that bring it into the right balance. Satan challenged Jesus to do something in human strength and in an attempt to get Jesus to force God to act. Jesus responds with rebuke that we are not to put God to the test. We must constantly remember that God is God and not us. We are never to presume upon God and we are never to put him to the test. Satan was tempting Jesus to put the focus on himself rather than on the Father. He was tempting Jesus to attempt to make God conform to human will rather than be obedient to God the Father and submit to his plan. But Jesus saw the deception. He rebuked the lie and he obeyed the Father. He came to do the Father's will, not his own will. We are to do exactly the same. So how do we discern truth? Well, first of all, we're not to believe everyone that we hear. Don't put your trust in what a television preacher says on the surface without testing it. And as I said before, don't even... Don't even listen to what I say or what another person says unless you test it according to the scripture, to the context in which it's revealed, and to how it fits in with other passages of the scripture. The Bible repeatedly warns us, the church, against false teaching. Understand, you will encounter it. If you live for any length of time, you will encounter false teaching as a follower of Christ. So what we need to do is we need to put everything to the truth test. Now, what is that? Well, let me give you some points that will, I'm gonna give you an expanded truth test and then I'm gonna give you a short version. But here's the expanded truth test. Does the teaching align with the word of God in context and in agreement with other teachings of scripture? Do other passages support or contradict this teaching? That's important for us to examine. If we're to discern whether or not something is true, we need to see how it fits in context. And understand, it may look on the surface like a contradiction, but if it's true, it is simply bringing us to a right balance. 
because oftentimes that's exactly what we need. We need to, to have truth be balanced. It, is, it goes, uh, there's a balance between grace and truth that work together in God communicating to us in his word. And it will always, always pass the second test. Here's the second test. Not only do we need to see how it aligns with other passages of scripture, we need to ask this. Does the teaching match the character? Does it match the commands and the example of Jesus himself? Remember, Jesus is the person of truth. And if it does not conform to who he is, to what he has done, what he has commanded, if it places the focus on ourselves and not on him, then we need to be very, very careful. The passage on waging war against false teaching ends with us being obedient to Christ. That is always God's goal. Because as we're obedient, we come into closer intimacy with him. Jesus is the ultimate truth test. Truth is a narrow way. It's a narrow door that is built upon the person and character of Jesus Christ. And so we need to examine where does this teaching point us? Does it point us more and more to Christ or does it flip and make the focus about us? If it is more about what I want as a human than about God's will, it is likely false. The next test that we're to take is the test of its fruit. What is the fruit of this teaching? Does it build unity within the body of Christ? Or does it result in division, hurt, and fear? None of us are to judge. We can't measure the heart of another person. We don't know their motives. But we can examine and should examine the fruit. The result of how what is being taught manifests itself into the life of the church. You see, if it brings division, if it causes hurt, if it causes people to doubt their faith and their walk with the Lord, rather than draw them to Him and to closer walk with one another, we need to be very careful. We need to see whether or not it really is truth. If it matches up with Scripture and matches up with the character of Christ. Another test, another point of examining whether something is true is we should ask this question. Does this teaching align with what the church has taught as right belief, which is the word orthodox means right belief, since the beginning? If it's a new idea, if it seems to have come up recently, we need to be extra cautious. Because the truth is, if, if the early church fathers, if the apostles didn't write on it and the early church um, themselves and the writings that we have, if they didn't teach it, we need to be careful. And so we need to assess that. That's not the only test. But if it's teaching something that's different, we need to be very cautious. And we need to examine where the teaching comes from. What is its source? What is its root? If the teaching does not pass the truth test, we need to be very wary and reject it. But here's the short test. Does this teaching place the focus on Jesus Christ, on his will and his glory or on our effort. Understand that the gospel, the good news, is all about Jesus. So let's look a little deeper here in this passage in 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. 
Now, what you could translate that are not from our resources. They're not from our energy, not from our power, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What he's saying is this is the process of maturity. All of us must continually align our thoughts to the character, nature, commands, and example of Jesus. Because the enemy seeks to deceive us, and his primary target is our minds. He will use things that sound right, that sound good, to distract us from living the life that Christ calls us to, to being obedient and living for his glory. Now, if we turn over just to the next chapter, we can see the background to what Paul is writing about. False teaching was occurring at Corinth. False teachers were presenting a different gospel than what Paul, the apostles, and Jesus taught. Look at it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Paul is being gentle here. He loves the church at Corinth. It's a church he planted. But he's, his heart cries out because he sees something false being brought into the people he loves. Verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I I want you to, to know more and more about Jesus. I want your heart and your life to be pure because that's where life is. And here's what he says in verse three. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. False teaching had become common at Corinth, and Paul was deeply concerned that the believers there had been deceived in the same way that Satan deceived Eve. Now, what does that mean? Satan tempted Eve with becoming like God and with the allure of secret knowledge. Look at Genesis chapter three, verses four through six. This is the temptation of Eve where God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll have secret knowledge. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Satan tempted Eve with hidden knowledge knowledge that would make her like God. Satan tempted her to become, in essence, a little God. He deceived her into thinking that God was somehow holding out on her, that he wasn't giving her everything that he should. And rather than trust God and obey his will, she needed to take action herself. She was an exception to God's rule and God's command. She could become like God. That was the temptation. 
This is what deception leads to. When the focus turns away from God being God and him alone, and it turns to us, we are in deep spiritual danger. In the early church, there were two primary deceptions that threatened the church over and over again. And both of them flowed from this single idea of Jesus plus. It would add something else to who Jesus is and what he had done. The first deception was Jesus plus hidden knowledge or, a, or an experience. And it was influenced not by the scripture, but by Gnosticism, a Greek mindset that thought that there was a division between the material and the spiritual. And that if you just had the right knowledge, then you would be able to move to the next level. When this teaching came into the church, it divided believers into different categories. Those who had secret knowledge were the ones who were truly mature. The deception was causing division and hurt in the early church. And it was leading people away from the gospel of Christ into the influence of Gnosticism. There are no classes of believers. You either trust in and treasure Jesus above everything else, and you are a member of his family, you are a child of God, or you do not. Are we to grow and mature in our faith? Certainly. Are we to desire spiritual gifts? Yes, but they are gifts that the Lord chooses. There's not a hierarchy of gifts that's revealed in the scripture. In fact, the only gift that perhaps has an edge that, that we should seek more diligently is the gift of love because it is the one that governs all the others. And so every gift is needed and there's not a classification of gifts. In some cases, there, there are those that teach if you have these certain sign gifts, then it's evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. The evidence that we are filled with the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit and that we are exercising the gifts that God has chosen to give to you and me in a way that builds up the church and points people to Jesus, that brings glory to him. That's what we're to focus on. When you hear teaching that's trying to put believers into different classes through hidden knowledge, you need to be very careful because the gospel is simple and it is all about Jesus Christ. It is not Jesus plus anything. We need to be very, very careful. The second deception in the early church was Jesus plus special rules. It was legalism. It was the Judaizers, those who were saying, yes, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but you also need to follow all these different rules. Or in some cases, it actually went the opposite way. There were those who believed in a Jesus plus special rules but those special rules actually granted exceptions to where your conduct, where your behavior didn't have to really match up to what the scriptures required. Both of those were false teachings because both of them focused in on Jesus plus. What it attempted to do was to take the focus off of who Jesus is as both God and human, the God man who is sinless and perfect who has existed for all eternity, who is born of a virgin, who lay, led a perfect sinless life and who willingly sacrificed himself for us, who 
um, died upon the cross, bearing your sin and my sin, was buried and rose from the dead victorious. It was taking the emphasis off of that and saying, but you still need something else. That is a lie of the enemy. It's the same lie he used against Eve. And we need to be so careful. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through any other path. No one gets closer to the Father except through him. Jesus plus is false teaching. And the Bible warns us repeatedly to be aware, to be on the the lookout and to understand that deception can creep in even to the church. But what we need to remember is that we need to see whether the things we hear, whether the things that we're being taught, whether the things we believe pass the truth test. Do they align with the character, with the commands, and with the example of Jesus Christ? We are to seek first his kingdom, his will, his purpose, and not our own. Our own wants should never, should never supersede God's will. They should always be in submission to him. That's the truth test. Are we seeking his will or are we seeking our own want? If we're seeking our want, what we believe and what we're practicing will not pass the truth test because it is all about him. Truth is a narrow path and it is always conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. My prayer for you and for me is that God will lead us more and more into truth and a right understanding of who he is and how he calls us to live and follow him and to show his love and grace to others. If you have questions about that, I want to encourage you to to write to us. We'll do our best to try to answer specific questions, especially if there's there's some things that you're really wrestling with. We invite you to, to send us an email or to write to us on Facebook or YouTube. We would love to walk alongside of you and be an encouragement to your life. So contact us.